Acts 21, the end of the chapter, verse 37, and then continuing into Acts 22 to verse 29 will be our passage this morning. To begin, I'll just read verses 37 to the end of 21, and then up to verse 8 in chapter 22. I know that sounds a little confusing. I don't know why the, uh, whoever decided to break the chapters up this way did it this way. But just remember about your infallible and inspired Bible, chapter and verse divisions are not infallible. They're just a way for us to navigate through Scripture. Acts 21, beginning in verse 37. The Bible says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying... And now chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground. And heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Let's ask God's blessing. God, we pray that you would illuminate by the Spirit of God this ancient, holy, inspired, and infallible text. That we may respond in faith and obedience and worship. We thank you for the boldness of our brother Paul. And I pray that we would not only emulate him, but we would dive deep into the source of his boldness. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Empower us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by asking you this question. Who do you think you are? I don't know what kind of emotion that conjures up within you when you hear that. Perhaps it brings you back to your childhood when you committed an audacious deed and your parents said to you, who do you think you are? Or maybe you've been subject to some sort of training where you have to figure out what your identity is, which of course is all the rage today. Who you think you are matters a lot. When you and I have confidence in who we are, It gives us confidence to live our life to the fullest. When we're not sure who we are, trying to discover ourselves, it could drive us to despair 
and hopelessness and the ever-shifting sands of time. This fad comes in, I'm going to be like this. That fad comes in, I'm going to be like that. People uh, experience this a lot in high school when you are trying to fit in with a certain crowd. I know I have gone through that myself, and every year I donned a new persona thinking that I've finally discovered my true self. You know, the White House is surrounded by fences and well-trained guards. You, You can't just invite yourself in to the White House. In those rare cases where someone breaches the security, we find out about it on the news, and that person is in a lot of trouble. And the question we would ask that person is, who do you think you are? How can you just walk in to the White House? There's no one that can just simply walk into the Oval Office unless, of course, you're the president. Unless, of course, you're the president's family. Knowing who you are opens up doors for you. Identity matters. And today we live in a world of misplaced identity. And before we only direct our gaze toward the world outside and say, look how confused they are about their identity, which is true, judgment begins at the house of God. And whatever the fads are outside, understand that Christians for all ages have struggled with prioritizing their identity. Who are you at your core? Do you identify mostly with your cultural background? Your family, where you grew up? Where is your relationship with Christ on the scale of your identities in this life? As we come to this text, we will see that Paul boldly declares who he is. Remember, Paul had been subject to a flurry of false accusations. He had been accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple and thus desecrating the temple. He had been accused of of being a Jewish apostate and teaching other people to go against the law of Moses. Even in our very text, he is mistaken for an Egyptian rebel. And so in front of a hostile crowd, where we left Paul last week, going up the steps, carried by the soldiers with two chains around him, before he gets into the barracks, Paul asks, can I just address the crowd So that he can boldly proclaim who he is. And it's that to which we turn our attention this morning. You can see in your outline, Paul identifies with several things in his life as he proclaims the truth to this audience. The audience that, as you remember last week, had just cried out, away with him, away with him. In the same spirit in which they cried that against the Lord Jesus. I don't know about you. But I don't know about what I would do in such a situation. You see, here in this room, the only hostility is the the humidity, right? I don't feel like anyone here is going to be super upset. I may step on some toes. The Bible always convicts. But I don't fear that anyone is going to, to cry away with him. Unless I preach too long, of course. But can you imagine a crowd... Double, triple, this size. Just who had just dragged me out of the temple and beat me. And now is taking me away into the barracks to save my own life, to find some relief from the persecution and physical pain. I don't know if I would turn around and say, let me address this crowd one more time. 
But the Spirit of God impressed upon Paul to boldly proclaim the truth at all costs. And I believe that we, you might say, I'm not Paul, and I'm not Paul either. But the same Spirit of God that empowered him to preach can empower you and me to stand up for truth even against a hostile audience. A hostile audience of one at your lunch break at work, or in this case, a hostile audience of hundreds, if not thousands. So let's see what Paul says. We already looked at the the first part of this message, beginning in verse 37 of chapter 21, where Paul's identity was mistaken. So once again, you know, the Jews already mistook his identity as some Gentile sympathizer who was teaching against the law. And now the, the very Roman soldier who has him in custody mistakens his identity. And he says, oh, you, you speak Greek? You know, Paul was, by the way, very educated. His father was a Roman citizen. Um, Paul was a Pharisee. He spoke fluent Hebrew, Aramaic. And Paul knew Greek, which was the language of the Roman Empire at the time. And just um, about three years prior to this event, there was an Egyptian rebel... Someone who claimed that he was going to break down the walls of Jerusalem. And he amassed a following of 4,000 people. And the Roman soldiers caught up to him and his people. 400 people died. 200 people were captured. And whoever this Egyptian rebel was, according to Josephus, ran away and was never seen from again. Well, three years later, Paul is stirring up the crowd... The Romans don't know much that's going on. They hear a lot of people yelling in Hebrew, but they see the chaos. And so when they hear Paul speak Greek, they say, are you that guy? You're the Egyptian rebel? Come back here to stir up trouble yet again? Now Paul has to once again declare that they've got it all wrong. He says, no, in in verse 3, I'm a Jew. Chapter 22, verse 3. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus. And I'm sorry, he says that twice. Back in verse 39 of chapter 21. I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, he is given permission to speak. Commentators are baffled as to why this is. We could assume that the Romans were so jealous to keep order that they felt, well, maybe if he, if he speaks, he'll quiet down the crowd, and that's the reason why they let him speak. It could also be they wanted more information, and now knowing that he speaks Greek, they're hoping he's going to speak in Greek, but he does not. There is something very interesting to, to me here, and I think if you've ever taught middle and high school, you would relate. Verse 40 says that Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush. That's a miracle. I would love to know what what kind of motion he had with his hand that could just hush the crowd of, of people. But all jokes aside, it's amazing that the Lord turned this hostile audience into a captive audience. And Paul has this this audience clamoring for his death, ready to hear. What would you say in those moments? What would I say? Well, here's what Paul says. First, he identifies himself as a Jewish person. Verses 1 to 3, we've already read it. He makes it clear to them that he is one of them. He speaks in a Hebrew dialect of Aramaic to identify with his people. He calls them fathers and brothers. He, he tells them that um, he 
was born in Tarsus, but brought up in this city. I'm from Jerusalem. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. I was a strict law-keeping Jewish person. When Paul became a Christian, he did not cease becoming a Jew. He was still Jewish by ethnicity. These were still his brothers by blood. He was zealous for God. See how he relates to them in verse 3 at the end. Being zealous for God as all of you are. He's identifying with their zeal. In a sense, he's commending them. Now, their zeal is misguided. But nonetheless, they have a zeal for God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul is saying, I have the same zeal for the same God as you. Listen to me. When we give the gospel, brothers and sisters, we don't come from a place of holier than thou. I'm better than you. I'm one of you. When you go outside and preach, when you, when you talk to your coworkers and your family, you talk as one of them. The only difference is you are now saved by grace. You are a Christian. You don't cease being a Syrian or Italian. But you are a Christian, first of all. And Paul identifies himself as a Jew in order that those Jews would listen to him. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jew, I become a Jew. In order that I might save some. That's Paul's first identity. Secondly, and by first I just mean chronologically. We'll get to how he prioritizes that later. But he also identifies himself as a sinner. Paul doesn't come to Jerusalem as though he is not a man with a bad rap sheet. He certainly was. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 22. He says, I persecuted this way. Notice it says in verse 4, this way. That is uh, one of the words people use for Christians back in those days. Paul, who is now on the other side of persecution, was once a persecutor himself. Paul, who was in chains as he spoke this message, was once the person responsible for putting Christians in chains. Paul stood by while Stephen was killed. Paul was responsible for wreaking havoc upon the church, including the church in Jerusalem. Paul is identifying himself here as a sinner. And again, when you present the gospel to your friends and co-workers, you present them not only as someone who's saved and a friend of God, but also someone who knows what it means to be a sinner. As Martin Luther famously said, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Oftentimes when we talk to people about going to heaven and being forgiven, one of the first things people might say is, oh, so you think you're better than me? No. Matter of fact, the reason why I'm telling you is because I know I'm not better than you. I know I'm a sinner in need of grace. So many religions teach that you have to be good. And and so it's, it's embedded in people's minds. That what you're just teaching the Christian version of being good to get to heaven. But we have to turn that upside down. It's like, no. Every other philosophy, every other religion is teaching what you can do to somehow earn favor with God. Earn heaven, whatever it might be. But Christianity teaches that God came to us. We could not come to Him. He came to us. And so you and I, we're, we're still sinners saved by grace. Yes, we are saints. And we are still sinners saved by grace. And Paul recognizes this. He's he's giving his testimony. Here's where I was. And God has changed me. And the same God who changed me can change you. 
Listen, if you're here today or you're hearing the sound of this on sermon audio and you think, no, 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 I've committed too many sins. I've gone too far deep into sin. God can never save me. Look at Paul. Not only was Paul wallowing in his unbelief and rejection of the Messiah himself, Paul was killing and imprisoning the Messiah's people. There is no greater audacity than that. And yet, in God's grace, Paul was saved. The grace of God reaches to the highest mountains, flows to the lowest valleys. There is nobody that Christ will cast out if you come to him. And thus, Paul now identifies with his Savior. Jesus Christ, verses 6 through 11, Paul gives the testimony. Now, we looked at this probably a few months ago when we were back in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10. And this is not the last we're going to hear, by the way, of Paul's testimony. But he talks about how he was drawing near to Damascus in verse 6, and a great light shone from heaven. And he fell down and heard the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? Verse 8, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Paul had an encounter with Christ. He says in verse 9, Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. You see, Paul is simply reporting what had happened. Don't let that escape you. As we've been talking about in our Wednesday night series, the gospel is good news. It is not a fable. It is not a fairy tale. It is not a myth. It is not just a feel-good story that somebody made up. It is actual news about something that actually happened. In real time, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, truly born of a virgin, truly God in the flesh, lived a life, died a death for us, and was raised on the third day. This is news, and we proclaim it to be true because it is true. Likewise, your testimony, like Paul's testimony, is not something you've conjured up, not some feeling you have in your heart, but something that really happened to you. Now, I understand not all of our testimonies could be as flashy as Paul. You might say, I wish I had something where I could say, you know, I was a drug dealing, gang banging prisoner for all these years and God saved me. And, you know, and I've experienced this and I've I've sat with people who, listen, if you were raised in the church and at an early age, you simply owned Jesus for yourself. That is a beautiful testimony. That is a testimony of the grace of God. May it be for all of the children here that they don't go down the road that Paul went down in order to find Christ. Christ is in your home. Children, if you're hearing the sound of my voice as your parents raise you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, may the Lord be real to you. May you own Jesus for yourself. May you believe on him at an early age that you might be spared of a life of sin. But for all of us in this room, No matter how old we were when we were saved, no matter where we were, whether we read a gospel tract at a bus station or turned on the television and heard a sermon or someone spoke to us one-on-one at a lunch break or a grandmother led us to the Lord with an open Bible when we were eight, nine years old, 
Whether you found the Lord at drug rehab or in prison, whether you found the Lord on your hospital bed, all testimonies are an amazing proclamation that God saves sinners. And the only way to be saved is the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether it's a gospel tract, a sermon, something that you've heard on the audio of a street preacher, whatever your story is, it all leads to the one way of salvation. Jesus Christ died for sinners, rose again, and he calls us by his grace. And God called Paul by his grace. And now this becomes the chiefest, most important, most supreme identity for Paul. That's why he says in verse 10, right after the light shone and Christ revealed himself, he says in verse 10, what shall I do, Lord? At that moment, Paul was no longer the Lord of his life. See, just a few verses later, uh, earlier, Paul says, I was going to Damascus. I was going to persecute. I was going to do what I wanted to do in my timing. But now, by the grace of God, Paul is dead. Christ lives in Paul. And Jesus Christ is Paul's life. That is our testimony as well. Every day we are crucified with Christ so that Christ would live. We decrease. He increases. Your identity and mine is mostly wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is Paul identifying with Christ himself, then Paul goes on to identify with Jesus' people as a Christian. Look what it says in verse 12 to 16. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. Notice what Paul's doing here, by the way. He's reminding his audience that the people who helped him in this journey were also well-respected Jewish people. Verse 13. Came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul is bringing in a witness here. He's bringing in a well-respected Jewish believer named Ananias. And he's not, as Paul earlier said, I worship the God of your fathers. He's also reporting that Ananias said, the God of our fathers appointed you. As another witness that this is the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's appointing you, Paul, for this. So Paul's identity is now found not only with Christ, but with people like Ananias. And then he goes on to get baptized. And baptism is our initiation into the church. It's our identification with God's people. This is an important point, brothers and sisters, because especially in modern day America, we tend to stop short at verse 11 and say, my identity is with Christ. We don't go further than that. There's a tendency within modern day evangelical Christianity to be content with only identifying with Jesus. I've got my Bible, I've got the Holy Spirit, I've got the Lord. Eh, God's people, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And we leave people alone. Now, can Christians be hypocrites? Yes. Are we weak? Yes. Will believers in the church let you down? We will. But is that an excuse 
to separate yourself from the body of Christ? The testimony of Scripture is clear. Christians are joined to a new family. We in this room may have different personalities. We may not have the same interests at times. But at the end of the day, we are blood-bought brothers and sisters. We worship the same God and the same amazing grace that saved you, saved the person sitting behind you and sitting next to you. We ought to identify not only with Christ, but with His people, warts and all. The church is the bride of Christ. And when we separate from the church, we put ourselves in a danger zone. It didn't take long for Paul to be welcomed into the church. Remember, we talked about this in previous sermons. Paul went to make sure that he was verified by the apostles. Paul was not a maverick, and neither should you or I be. And so Paul tells this hostile crowd, Jesus saved me on the road to Damascus. And then I I was joined by Ananias. I was baptized. I'm a Christian now. I'm a Christian. Paul also identifies with his mission. As Ananias told him, God called him to know his will. Now in verse 17 to 21, Paul says this. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go! For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. See, Paul used to be a persecutor, but his life was gloriously changed. Because the Jews would not accept that testimony, the Lord sent him to the Gentiles. So here's the connection that Paul's making, if you can follow. And keep in mind, one of the very things that made the audience in front of him so angry is that they charged him with bringing Gentiles into the temple, which was a false accusation. What Paul is saying thus far is this. He's a Jew, trained in the law, zealous for the same God, and it was Ananias, a respected Jew, who verified that it was God calling him, and it was because of his own safety that this same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, he's like he's saying, don't shoot the messenger. This didn't come from me. I didn't decide that the gospel would be open to the Gentiles. It was the Lord who told me to do this. And the Jews that were so angry at the time missed the fact that all of this was predicted by their very prophets. Even when God called Abraham to start the Jewish nation, he said, and your people will be a blessing to the nations. Over and again in the Old Testament, there are hints that the gospel would be opened up not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. Paul was God's chosen messenger to bring this message to the Gentiles. And he's saying, I'm dedicated to this mission. The reason why you see me with Gentiles walking around Jerusalem, though not in the temple, 
is because God called me to this. And regardless of what their response would be, regardless of the danger that might put him in, Paul was dedicated to the mission. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, can we say the same about the mission that God has entrusted us with? The mission of bringing the gospel to a lost and dying world. Is it something we do only when convenient or something that we do in spite of the cost, as we see from Paul? Now, you've heard, I'm sure, of confirmation bias. This is where you've already pegged someone as an enemy and you're just looking for a reason to hate that person. Looking for a reason to persecute, perhaps. Well, they've already come up with this accusation that Paul was desecrating the temple with Gentiles. So it's no surprise then, after all the speech we just went through, that as soon as Paul utters that word, the crowd changes. So if you look again at the end of verse 21, the word is Gentiles. And now verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said... Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Wow. Talk about seething anger. That anger was suspended, right, just for a few moments. But as soon as Paul said, I'm going to the Gentiles, all bets were off. And whereas earlier when they cried, away with him, away with him, you could imagine maybe they just want him out of Jerusalem. They make it very clear that away with him means kill him, put him to death. It says in verse 23, and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. This was a sign, by the way, that blasphemy had just been committed. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. That means as he's questioned, he will be whipped. Physical beating and interrogation at the same time to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So it's sad to report that in many ways, after Paul had recounted his whole testimony, the crowd wasn't really listening. They were just waiting you know what that's like when you're in the midst of a conflict and you don't feel like you're being listened to, but someone's just waiting to hear that one word and say, aha, I knew it. Aha, he's a Gentile sympathizer. I told you. Away with him. Kill him. And it's so sad because their own scriptures testified that God would open a way for the Gentiles. Their own scriptures spoke of how Israel was to be a blessing to the nations Their own scriptures revealed the mercy that God showed to people like like, uh, uh, Ruth and Rahab and to the city of Nineveh and the prophets of old who declared that kings of all nations would come and gather in Jerusalem. But as we saw in our first message in this sub-series called Paul in Jerusalem, during this time in Jerusalem's history, they were experiencing a, a nationalistic revival. And within that revolution, they were becoming more and more ethnocentric. That means Jewish alone. We're we're God's people. Nobody else. Thus, in their anger, they rejected Paul's reaching out to the Gentiles. And thus, they rejected Paul. And thus, in doing so, they rejected the God who saved and commissioned Paul. 
Now, Paul, as I have said several times throughout this series, counted it a joy to suffer in the same way that Jesus did. The parallels between Paul's life and Jesus' life in these few chapters are striking. As we saw last week, as they shouted, away with him, thus they also shouted to Christ, away with him. And as they shout here in verse 22, away with him from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. Does that not remind you of what Jesus went through when he stood before Pilate and the crowd chanted away with this man and released to us Barabbas? And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. That same seething rage that filled the hearts of those who shouted crucify him to Jesus filled the hearts of those who shouted away with him to Paul. Just as the Romans then said, we'll bring him into the barracks and flog him, whip him, and interrogate him. So in John 19 verse 1, the Bible tells us, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The parallels are striking. But once again, I remind you that Paul said that one of his aims in life was to know Christ. And not only the power of his resurrection, but the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death. So for this, Paul was blessed because he got to experience that which his Lord experienced. Paul identified with Christ's sufferings. Well, this story ends with one more identity, and that's Paul's identity as a Roman. It says in verse 25, when they stretched him out for the whips, right, they're about to flog him. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came, that's a higher order, and he said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. It's like, oh yeah? Who do you think you are? Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. See, Paul calls in one more witness to save his life, and that is Roman law. It was illegal to flog a Roman citizen, especially one who was uncondemned. Paul had not been charged with a crime. The Roman soldiers had no idea why the Jewish people were crying out and shouting. Paul didn't understand most of the language, as it were. Now, it was also illegal to pretend to be a Roman citizen, and we don't know... Exactly what's happening here, I mean, commentators suggest that implicit is Paul is carrying on him some sort of identification. But whatever it is, clearly, in verse 28 and 29, the Romans withdraw because they were convinced this was a Roman citizen. And we're about to do something that's going to get us in a whole lot of trouble. Now, Paul, when talking to the original centurion, and talking to the crowd, didn't bring up his Roman citizenship until this moment. 
And for obvious reasons. I think if, if Paul had started his speech with, brothers and sisters, I am a Roman citizen, it would have ended right there. So Paul, even, even in using that which would save his earthly life, was still a man of integrity and wisdom. And compare that to the tribune himself. The tribune says, I bought this citizenship with a large sum of money. Commentators are almost unanimous in saying what that means is that he bought it through a bribe. This man bribed his way to achieve Roman citizenship, whereas Paul was born into it. Paul's, he got it from his father, who was a free man. And that says a lot. Paul is like the one who can go places that others can't go. And someone can say, who do you think you are? And Paul can say, aha, I got the card. But he only used it in the proper time. He didn't flaunt it. It didn't, I, didn't define who he was. But he had that card in his pocket for moments like this. This speech on the steps was a bold proclamation of who Paul was. Who was Paul? According, if you take all these things together, he was a Jewish Christian who was a Roman citizen and he was fueled by his identity with Christ and dedication to the mission. Now briefly, brothers and sisters, how does that apply to us today? Go to the next slide. The priority of identity. Paul's identity was sure in his heart. He knew who he was. He knew what God had done in his life. And so he was so bold to proclaim to a hostile audience. And I wonder if we have prioritized our identity correctly as well. In order for us to be at one with, in harmony with, at peace with our identity, I suggest to you three things. That you know your identity well. That you order your identity rightly. And then you and I can proclaim it boldly. First, know it well. May I suggest to you, brother and sister, I'm talking to those who know the Lord. Do not grow tired of reminding yourself what scripture says you are. You live in a world that will call you all sorts of things. Just by your own testimony as a Christian, you might be called a bigot, narrow-minded, old-fashioned. I can't believe you believe that. You might be tempted to believe some of those things about yourself. Or you might be so bogged down with the weight of your fallenness that Satan would tempt you to despair. And you would only live a life of guilt and shame. You need to know what God says about you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins and received him by faith alone as your Savior, you are a child of God. You've been adopted by the Most High. Your name is written in heaven. Your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. The God who cannot forget anything chooses to forget your iniquities against him. He has called you and set your feet upon a rock. He has reserved for you a place in heaven. You are already seated in the heavenly places. You have been born again by his spirit. Your old self is dead. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. You are in favor with God. You are beloved by God. You are accepted by God. The same love that existed for all 
eternity and was shared between the members of the holy, holy, holy trinity has been poured out upon you. And there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. This is your identity. This is who you are. And you are also a member of God's church. You are part of his body. This is your family. When one hurts, we all hurt. This is who you are. Don't take your cues from the world. Take your cues from the infallible standard of God's word. And I only touch the surface, by the way. Remind yourself daily of who you are, what your mission is in this world. By the way, if you're outside of Christ today, if you've come or you listen to this recording and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, understand that the Bible has a lot to say about you as well. You currently abide under the wrath of God. You abide under darkness of unbelief. Your father is not God. Your father is the devil. You are a sinner who has committed treason against the king of kings. And the only hope you have to not go to hell for all of eternity is to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ alone. The one who lived a perfect life for us, who died an atoning death for us, and was raised on the third day. And the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And all those things that I just listed about all the brothers and sisters in here is true about you who come to Christ. He that comes to me, Jesus said, he will in no wise cast out. Brothers and sisters, know your identity well. Secondly, order your identity rightly. Order it rightly. You see, Paul did not cease being these other things. Yes, he was a Christian first of all. But he was a Roman citizen, and he used it in the proper manner. He was still Jewish, and he used it in the proper manner. So, you and I might identify with the city we grew up in, the language that we speak, the culture that we live in. There is nothing inherently wrong with loving your culture, and the food, and the music, and the customs that come with it. There's nothing inherently wrong with being a patriot, and loving your country, and and being thankful for the freedoms that we have. Nothing wrong with identifying yourself as as an athlete. Or, or, as, or as a nerd, or as a construction worker. Nothing wrong with these things, brothers and sisters. And whatever you do with these things, do them well. However, you are a Christian first. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. Notice, in our text, Paul defended two things. He defended the gospel, and he defended himself. But who did he give priority to? It was the gospel. He spent more time defending the gospel, defending the Lord, defending his testimony. And then at the very end, he had an opportunity to defend his life. It's not an either or, brothers and sisters. It's a both and, but we must know the priority. The kingdom first. I am first and foremost a Christian before I am everything else. And whenever something in my life comes head to head with my Christian identity, I will choose my Christian identity every time. If if your identity as a taxpayer comes into conflict with your Christian values, and you say, well, I have to finagle the numbers a little bit in order to eat food, and by doing so, I'm sitting against God by being dishonest, which one do you choose? If your identity as a member of a family who wants to throw a birthday party at 11 a.m. on Sunday... 
comes into conflict with your identity as a Christian who comes together to worship God at 11 a.m. on Sunday, then what do you choose? And those are just two examples, brothers and sisters. This is where the rubber meets the road. You know what it's like to have those two identities butt heads at some times. But we must pick and choose to be a Christian first of all because that's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity is worshiping the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, you were bought with a price. You are chosen and precious. Order your identity rightly. And then, finally, God will give you the boldness to then proclaim that to the world. Several years ago, there was a Christian rapper who was criticized by fellow Christians because he was performing a song on a daytime show, and he was wearing a hat that displayed the number of his group of rappers. The number was taken from a Bible verse. And when the host asked him what the numbers on the hat meant, he replied, that's my team. And when he was pressed again, given the opportunity to say, this a Bible verse, he didn't say that. He just said, uh, that's my team. And of course, this rapper was criticized all over the internet for compromising, and perhaps rightly so. But brothers and sisters, I think we could relate to that. There have been times in our lives, family gatherings, lunch at work, where we have an opportunity to say who we are and stand for truth and under the pressure of scorn and ridicule and marginalization, we cower. We say nothing. This will always be a temptation. Jesus even told his disciples in Matthew 10, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Sound familiar? And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That sounds pretty rough. But here's the promise of the Lord. I want you to hear this. What promise did Jesus give to his disciples after he just told them they're going to be dragged before governors and flogged? He said, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. This is the promise we can take to the bank. Yes, it was for the disciples in the first century. But the same Lord who gave them that command tells you and me, if we draw close to the Lord... We obey him. He will give us the words to say in those hours of temptation. And we will be able to proclaim it boldly. And by the way, boldness does not mean harshness. It doesn't mean the volume of your voice. It doesn't mean you have to be the most provocative or scandalous person in the room. Boldness simply means confidence. Do you have confidence that what God has done in your life is true? Then take heart. When those moments come for you to determine and tell the world who you are, the Lord will give you the words to say. And you will be able to say them with confidence to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father.